Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sports World Podcast. I have Ryan Dean with me in Malaysia. Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm doing really great. That's good to hear. What's so great yeah. about what's going on in life? Has it something to do with Arsenal winning 3-0 over Chelsea? Yeah, and- that, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> that 3-0 drubbing of Chelsea. That was That was a sweet victory, you know. Yeah, so talk a little bit more about that. There was obviously a match where Arsenal went in not having scored a goal against Chelsea for six straight of their meetings. So in the past six consecutive matches against Chelsea, Arsenal had basically put up a clean sheet, but for the wrong team. So what 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 went on with Arsenal this time? Because the end result was clearly a clean sheet for one of the teams, but it was actually the team in red for once that got the clean sheet with three whole goals to add to that as well. So what went on at the Emirates on Saturday afternoon or evening in London to kind of make up for that that output and production? Well, it all comes down what happened at the Emirates uh, at that time. It was a very beautiful football being played. And it was really beautiful indeed. Uh, not just in terms of, you know, the result is beautiful as well, but the way we played. I mean, after all these years that we lost to Chelsea, under different managers as well. I mean, we got dominated by Drogba before, and then Diego Costa came to the Premier League, and he dominated us again. Uh, but in this match, we dominated Diego Costa. We dominated Chelsea. So that that's what happened. That's what went down at the Emirates. It made my heart flutter, you know. It made my heart jump out in joy, seeing, all right, this is my Arsenal. This is the real Arsenal we're talking about here. The passes, uh, the passages of play in attack, and the defense was resolute. I mean, Gordon Mustafi passed this test really well against Diego Costa. He's not drawn to, you know, answer the provocations of Costa, unlike Gabriel last season, and got sent off. Mustafi was great alongside Koscielny. The midfield was great, even though a lot of noise was being made to include Granit Xhaka in midfield, but Wenger stuck with Francis Kakulan and Santi Cajola, but it was a good pairing, like Wenger said, and they did dominate the midfield. They made sure Fabregas and Matic were kept quiet. And then Ozil versus Angolo Kante. I mean, Ozil really showed the world uh, at the Emirates how to deal with Kante. And we know Kante to be an enterprising player in the middle of the park. He's going to be here and there, winning tackles and intercepting stuff, but Ozil is really on a class of his own at the Emirates. So. That's a joy to see. Well, Alexis Sanchez, that guy, is really proving to be, you know, closer to the best in the world. I mean, earlier in September, earlier this month, he proclaimed that he himself is already on the level of Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. He demanded to be respected as such, and a lot of people ridiculed him for that statement, but he's getting there because uh, maybe he answered Arsenal Wenger's challenge. Wenger said, he is a great player, but what he needs right now is consistency. And this month, after having made that statement earlier, and he's been consistent with his performances and he's getting there and he's proving to dominate opposition defenses, especially one as strong as Chelsea, which is actually not that strong considering how the goals were conceded. You mentioned the Alexis Sanchez point, which is really cool. And you mentioned a ton of other great points that I want to dive into. but. I'll take your last one, which is Sanchez, and kind of work our way inwards. And the deal with Sanchez is that he's always been someone that I've uh, really come to admire. I mean, Barcelona and Spain is my favorite team. 
that's outside of Europe. And I like Dortmund and Bayern Munich and all those big teams as well. And Madrid, you know, gets my respect as well. I mean, they, they, they have a harder time of earning my respect because they somehow like just decide to buy every player on the face of the earth. And then they don't mesh well together all the time. And then they fire coaches who ostensibly hadn't had any control. Like this is Florentino Perez put it, pulling the strings and then telling the coach to like make something happen with a roster full of Galacticos. And these Galacticos have high egos and personalities and they don't always clash. And it's kind of like Team USA before Coach K got there. It's like Real Madrid really hasn't found its Coach K. And when they do, they have some success, but then it's only momentary, the way Carlo Ancelotti got unjustifiably fired, in my opinion. So, like, when they do get a coach, K, they just fire him <laughs> the moment something goes wrong. But the thing with Alexis Sanchez is, I didn't know too much about him when he was a speedy winger at Udinese in the Italian league. But then he moved to Barcelona and had this amazing career alongside Lionel Messi, and even Thierry Henry was there at some point. Um, so, with the likes of Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets, Puyol, Pique, Messi, Alexis seemed to be a level a little bit below those guys. That was clear, right? Like, there wasn't, uh, those guys were on a different playing field. They were grown through the Barcelona system, so they had an elevated level of mental acuity and uh, physical ability that a lot of other people don't have just because they weren't brought up through the La Masia system. So in that sense, Alexis was at a bit of disadvantage, but he, despite that, he had a good production and output, I thought, in all of his years at Barcelona. He was never always the starter, but he always played as if he was the starter. And that was something that really stayed with me. And when he went to Arsenal just a couple of years ago, he became our big signing, I, I think, because when I did the Ozo article last year, I thought it was Alexis that came first, and then it, and then came Ozil, and then came uh, Mertesacker, I think. And so, like, Alexis was the first player that Wenger bought and has stayed as this whole thing has come about. And if it's not Alexis, it might be Santi Cazorla, who came even before Alexis Sanchez did. So the likes of Giroud and Alexis Sanchez and Danny Welbeck and, uh, you know, like all these other names like Ozil have come in and in a way, Sanchez is the harbinger of all those people that have come in after him. And to see him go through greater and greater success over the years has been good, especially as he achieves those successes in an Arsenal shirt. But my actual point of saying all that is it's good that he's thinking on that level because the really weird part about life is if you say it enough and you proclaim it to the world, as the great Conor McGregor says, then it will happen for you. It's just you have to have the conviction to put in the hard work and effort to become great. But then what a lot of people get it wrong is that they don't tell the world what they want to be and what they can do. And, you know, chances are you won't get there. You can put in all the hard work, but at some point you may not get there. There's like injury things that could happen that prevent Alexis from becoming a, someone that's a challenger for the top two in the Ballon d'Or award category every year so in that aspect i hope he gets there if that's his dream and goal then i hope he gets there and this is a good starting point to getting there but i like to think that the starting point came a little bit earlier in the summer when his chile beat Lionel messi's argentina in the copa america final do you think that had anything to do with it yeah that that has a lot of 
uh, I mean, it influences uh, what, you know, eventually Alexis said in September. It, it influences the statement a lot, you know. It is that desire for greatness. I mean, he's been successful before. I mean, with Barcelona, he, he's won La Liga. He's won uh, a lot of some Spanish Cups as well. And, and then with Chile, obviously, he won the Copa America back-to-back. And that, that is a great achievement as well. But the level of greatness that he wants to achieve here is he wants to be the star, you know. At Barcelona, like you said, I mean, it's not like he's second rate or anything. It's just that the players uh, already in existence at Barca at the time, they were already stars. And Alexis, when he moved from Udinese to Barcelona, I think uh, he wants to be a star, but he didn't get there. So that's why I think when he moved to Arsenal, I said, wow, Arsenal just got a hold of a great player here, a player with great potential, actually. So... I guess that comes uh, with the way of thinking of Alexis because he wants to be great. At Arsenal, he gets to be the main man. I mean, who else is going to challenge him for that number one spot at Arsenal? Mesut Ozil is content and very happy indeed to be the assistant at Arsenal. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you, if you get the pun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Cajola as well. And he's also happy to be in the assistant role. And there's only one. There's only Alexis Sanchez at Arsenal. That is... Uh, the position that Alexis relishes, you know, he wants to be great. And I believe when he made that statement that he's already on par with Ronaldo and Messi, maybe it's part frustration because even when he won the Copa America back then, people don't talk about him winning the Copa America. People talk about Lionel Messi walking out, sulking, and then retiring from international football at the time, you know, completely foregoing the fact that Alexis just created history with Chile. They won back-to-back Copa Americas. They beat Argentina, led by Lionel Messi, the world's best player. And yet people are talking about Messi and Argentina, the losing team, not about Alexis and Chile. So I guess that's what made him, you know, say it out loud earlier. And it's good he's, he's doing it at Arsenal. Good for us at Arsenal. And I hope that he can lead Arsenal to glory with his ambition as well and maybe, you know, attract maybe in, down the road, more great players to join him as well. And I hope he extends that contract because Arsenal really needs him. And I think Alexis realizes that this is the only place where he can be great, where he can create history as well. Yeah, and it's it's interesting you said create history because there's this whole debate that happens with Arsene Wenger out. There's like hashtags and Twitter activism going on. There's better issues out of the world to have Twitter blow up about. But whenever Arsenal lose a game, it's always down to Wenger out. Like that's the hashtag that goes up up across the internet. And a huge faction, or I guess a medium-sized faction of Arsenal supporters are always kind of against Arsene Wenger for that reason. And they have a point, right? Like there's moments in time and in games where I'm frustrated by the tactics and I can tell like the team that he put out isn't really like gelling because the way Arsenal plays like short passes and so you have to have a higher chemistry and mental understanding for at least three, any three players to make that triangle of passing work. Three of the players at any given point have to have a higher chemistry level than the other other eight that remain on the field because those eight won't be directly involved in the action at that moment. But at times he puts out these teams that don't really have that chemistry and don't really just gel. And these teams, for whatever reason, whether it's his motivation tactics or whatnot, 
they they tend to collapse in the biggest of moments. And while we always finish above Spurs, that's always not enough because we know that it's like these these random games where we just don't show up to play, and then those are the two or three point margin of victory that separates us from at the end of the day being third in the table versus being first in the table. And it's been quite a while since we've been first in the table. And I'd like to think that all of those people that say Wenger out have a valid point and a valid argument. And they're not completely ludicrous. They're not just Arsenal fans that want a certain thing without having the proof to back it up. But I think throughout all of that time, you and I, despite our criticisms of Arsene Wenger from time to time, we have supported him. And we've said that, no, this guy deserves to stay. He brought this club into relevance. But then there's also the argument that Arsenal had like 10 league titles and Liverpool had 18. And so Arsenal was like second most titles before Arsene Wenger got there. And United had like three, I believe. And now they have 17, I want to say. Um, 20, I think. I think it's 20. Yeah, so, like, Sir Alex Ferguson basically is a bad man <laughs> who is, like, a really, really great at winning and easily the best manager ever in England. But <laughs> but Arsenal had 10, and they have under Wenger 11, I think. So there's not much that has happened in terms of, like, sheer raw production in terms of winning trophies. But in terms of... Here's another metric that I saw on Reddit that someone posted after the match saying that this is for all the Wenger out people, like just look at this stat. And it was in the last 20 years that Wenger has been at Arsenal, Arsenal have never finished outside of fourth. So they've always been in the top four for the last 20 years. And you go back and you look at all the big clubs and you see it's like, has Barcelona stayed out of the top four in the last 10 years? Yes. Has Bayern Munich done that? Yes. Has Atletico Madrid done that? Yes. Real Madrid? Yes. All these biggest teams you can name. Manchester United, just last year, they were, I, I think they were not in the top four, if I'm not getting it correct. Like Chelsea was definitely not in the top four. Liverpool is not in the top four. And this guy has kept our team in the top four for the last 20 years. So Ryan, I'm asking you, doesn't that count for something when people throw all these stats that tell you that Arsene Wenger deserves to be thrown out of Arsenal. This is, should be his last year. Uh, he shouldn't get another contract extension. When they all say that, are you happy with knowing that he kept us in the top four and made Arsenal be a club that's worth uh, worth even talking about in the same breath as the Real Madrids and the Arsenal or in the Bayern Munichs and the and the Barcelonas? Well, you know. I'm really tired about people criticizing Wenger. I mean, I'm tired of arguing with those people. But I will say this. Since this is Arsenal Wenger's final season, and put a, an asterisk there, yeah. final season, <laughs> yeah, he could, he could uh, you know, sign a, a contract extension, but that yeah. depends on how, on how Arsenal performs this season. Here's the thing. If Wenger leaves this season, regardless of success, uh, you're going to see players like Alexis Sanchez, like Mesut Ozil, who's got contracts like two more years left, Santi Cajola, and the, all these important players. They're definitely going to leave because they came here because of Wenger, you know, because they know Wenger can give them the you know, stability. They can give them support here at Arsenal. Here they can become the star without distractions. And 
when they do achieve success this season, and then people, all these people that criticize Wenger, when Wenger leaves, you will see a void there, a huge void. Just like when Sir Alex Ferguson left Manchester United. What happened when Sir Alex Ferguson left Manchester United? They put David Moyes there. It was a huge failure. And then comes another huge failure in Louis van Gaal. And then right now it's Jose Mourinho. And although his team won 4-1 last weekend, this past weekend, if things don't go up, I think it's going to be another huge failure. So that's, that's the prospect that is facing Arsenal when Wenger leaves. And I hope it does not leave because I hope he stays for like at least two more years, you know, just to get all these players stay, Ozil, Alexis, Santi Cajola, just so that they can win the English Premier League with them. Just once is enough to convince them to stay. And then you can hire another manager. I mean, because right now in the rumors, uh, they say Wenger leaves, the only probable manager to replace him is Eddie Howe of Bournemouth. I mean, come on. Do you think Alexis is going to want to play under a manager like Eddie Howe, yeah. who hasn't anything yet? Nope. Do you think Ozil, a World Cup winner, you know, a Champions League winner, wants to play under Eddie Howe, whose only achievement is only leaving Bournemouth out of, the, out of the second division and escaping relegation last season? No. All these top players will definitely leave. So you got to think about that perspective. Arsenal are doing great this season, and probably this squad that we are witnessing here is one of the most complete Arsenal squads ever. And we might see a new Arsenal history being made this season. And I'm saying this, you know, of course it's been frustrating uh, these past 20 years because only three titles won under Wenger, and that was a long time ago. But still, the stability that he gave us uh, amidst all that. You know, we were short of money when we built the Emirates Stadium. We don't have enough money. We have to sell our star players and stuff. And we still managed to finish in the top four. So that's something to think about as well. So I rest my case. I mean, Wenger is very, very important. His, he is himself an institution at an institution called Arsenal. Yeah, and he studied economics, which is actually the field that you want to be studying if you're a manager. I mean, Sir Alex Ferguson, I don't think, studied economics, but he studied human communication really well and leadership really well, which is why he's writing his 50th book on how to win and how to guide bed, how to turn them into leaders of bed. So <laughs> no, no uh, offense to Alex Ferguson. We love all his books, even if he's writing them like every six months. And it should be physically impossible to do that. <laughs> but uh, keep doing work, Alex Ferguson. Keep doing work. <laughs> but yeah, the thing with Arsene Wenger is he studied economics. When he got to Arsenal, he realized that there was a market inefficiency, you could say. Like in baseball, Billy Bean figured out that you want guys who have high on base percentages because they will be the ones that always get on base. Once you get on base, you can steal second, get to third on a hit, and then all you have to do is get home. And when you get home, you put up a run. And when you put up a multiple run game, your pitchers, if, it, if they're decent enough to hang in there, they'll get you the win and you'll become a fairly competitive team even if you have a low, low roster in terms of payroll. And so... Arsene Wenger not necessarily thought to that extreme, but he thought of innovative ways to like train up the training regime, to train up the diet, to have these players on rest and relax schedules that like he gave Ozil a break this year that was one week longer than I thought he would give him. And I think Arsenal ended up losing that match. And I complained that like, why was Ozil sitting on the bench? But 
in his mind, he saw that, okay, well, this team without Ozil for one more week is going to be slightly inferior uh, because of what Ozil is able to do and capable of doing. But then I guess in his mind, it was he was thinking so far out ahead that it's like if I use Ozil not as aggressively in this week and just keep him on the bench and use him starting one week later, hit all of his injuries and bodies will have enough time to heal. He'll be more fitter. That means less injuries in the future. Like he'll have a greater time to get into the match pace of things so that he doesn't humiliate himself after like being on vacation, after going to like the semifinals of the Euros. And so he does all these thinking things that are so long-term, that are so economical, that for people that don't have that background and mindset, they don't necessarily understand it if they're looking at it in the moment. But I think that's the, that's the thing with everything in life. If you look at it in the moment, it doesn't really make sense. But when you look at it in the long term, like with a longer perspective on the past or some sort of understanding of the past, that's when correlations and patterns start to emerge. And that's the thing with Arsene Wenger is that he always looks to the future. And in building the club, Arsenal, for the last 20 years, he's left a fundamental blueprint for other managers to work with. And Ryan, I think while Eddie Howe is not necessarily the answer in terms of Wenger's replacement when the time comes, I think a good replacement would actually be Thomas Tuchel of Borussia Dortmund if we can get him the way Liverpool ended up getting Jurgen Klopp after a horrendous season from Dortmund. If we can get Tuchel um, to Arsenal, I think that's the best move, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, Tuchel has been doing really great with Dortmund, you know, with all this young players currently. I mean, look at this past, I mean, two or three weeks. Borussia Dortmund has been dominating the opposition, been scoring goals left and right like it was nothing. Mm-hmm. And has been doing this with young players, you know. People say a lot when you mention Dortmund, people will say about this season at least. I mean, Mario Gotze returning to Dortmund. But that's not really the main storyline here. The main storyline here for Dortmund is how the young players like Usman Dembele, like Rafael Guerrero, you know, like Christian Pulisic, like Emery Moore, Julian Weigel, you know, they're they're dominating for Borussia Dortmund, and that's a good that's good news for for the German Bundesliga. I mean, of course, Bayern Munich are first, but Dortmund are very close second right now with the current personnel that they have. So Tuchel is definitely a great prospect to be a future Arsenal manager. Another name that I would love, mm-hmm. although the system would be markedly different than what Wenger, you know maybe dreamt about, uh, Diego Simeone. It's going to be a bit different of a different system, of course, but it's really probable, you know, because seeing all these managers right now, all these best managers playing their trade in the English Premier League, Pep Guardiola at City, Jose Mourinho at Manchester United, Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool, Antonio Conte at Chelsea. So maybe Simeone will be enticed to actually make the move to the English Premier League, and maybe he'll choose Arsenal. So maybe that will be great. Yeah, I mean, do you, so in the past, like in one of my uh, fits of uh, frustration with Wenger and one of the podcasts from last year, I even brought out the idea that if and when Wenger retires, if he retires early or like before he wants to leave the game, he should probably stick around at the club in like a higher capacity where he's not in charge of like the transfer market or anything like that because the incoming manager would have that ability and power. 
But Wenger would basically be like a special advisor to the manager kind of role where he's not managing, he's not on the field, he's maybe in the stands. But it's it's a little bit better than the approach that United took with Sir Alex, which, I mean, Sir Alex might have been just like, I, I want to just completely not see Old Trafford again for like the next six months. I want to go write five bucks in the meantime. So he might have had different goals. But I think with Arsene Wenger, what Arsenal should try to do is if they don't give him a re-extension um, like at some point this year for the next a year or two years, what they should do is try to get him to sign a contract where he takes this special advisor to the club kind of role and then the new incoming manager can come in while Wenger is still with the club but not in a managerial facility. So this lessens Wenger's workload if that's what he's looking for but also allows the incoming manager, whether it's Tuchel or Simeone or even Eddie Howe, and get them to understand what the Arsenal method is. Because that's where the biggest like transition point and difficulties are going to arise is when the new manager comes in, he's not always going to be so sure, is, is this the Arsenal way? Is this the way Wenger would do it? And lo and behold, if you have the man himself right there for you to call up or ask any question you want, that would be a really good help. Like think about it in the way of the sports where like if I leave, then if I completely left and you had to take over and you couldn't talk to me again, I don't know why that would happen. But like imagine in a scenario where like you had no ability to ask me any questions about like, hey, how do you edit the podcast? Or hey, how did you set up this meeting for this thing? And if I don't help you in any way, then you're obviously going to be at a huge disadvantage. There's going to be a higher learning curve for you. And it takes you a longer patch of time to figure those things out. And the thing about it is that, like, as we saw at United, managers don't have a lot of time to get things figured out. They don't have a lot of room to make mistakes. And so having Wenger there in a capacity that's not the managerial one where he willingly gives up that power and responsibility to be someone like Yoda that brings in the next Luke Skywalker and makes him a Jedi. Oh no! I mean, you just have to bring up the Skywalker reference, but yeah, you know, Yoda is still there. Obi Wan Kenobi, and all those stuff. But you know, yeah, maybe in a director of football type of capacity at Arsenal. Uh, Ivan Gazidis obviously runs mm-hmm. the show at Arsenal uh, as the you know CEO or representative of the owners that be at Arsenal. Stan Kroenke or Kroenke. I, I, to this day, I still don't know how to pronounce his name. You know, I only remember his epic mustache, that's all. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's Kroenke. And uh, yeah. Kroenke is a little too busy here in LA trying to get a football team and revolution started in Los Angeles. Like how he tried to have Jared Goff as his starting quarterback. Yeah, that's yeah. epic. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, that would, be, that would be a great idea, having Arsene Wenger in a director of football capacity. But the question is, can the manager, the incoming manager, accept this kind of arrangement? Will Thomas Tuchel set aside his ego? Will Diego Simeone, who has a huge ego, be able to set it aside in order to just to work uh, under Wenger a bit? So probably there's a lot of things to do that. And maybe in th- if this is the case, you know, Wenger in, in that kind of role, maybe Eddie Howe is the right choice mm-hmm. for Arsenal. But that's still, you know, up, up for debate. You know, Wenger may still yet sign a new contract maybe another two years just to make sure that Arsenal stay on the path towards success. Yeah and I always remember that one line in the 2014 Champions League final I think it was the first time Atletico Madrid and Real Madrid faced off 
in uh, Lisbon, Portugal, where one of the U.S. announcers, they said that Diego Simeone is known as a god to the red and white half of Madrid and to his people and to the players themselves. Like they pray at the altar of Simeone. And so if that god comes into Arsenal's god, can two gods clash? Like, could they have a war? I don't know if these things are possible. But yeah, when you have that high level of a manager coming in, like a Mourinho, for instance. Well, Mourinho is a different example because he just put out a book that said that I'm going to punch Wenger if I see him in the street. So that's not a good mentor for Mourinho to have if he does overtake Arsenal at some point. But uh, if Simeone comes in, I'm sure there's no animosity already there. I'm sure there's like a level of respect between the two. So I think that that would happen if I'm a halfway decent manager that's not insecure about my position within the club. And if I know that I have full power within the transfer market, uh, I have full power tactically, then I could do all those things like implement my own system or figure out innovative ways to train the players and go different places where Render hasn't tried out or has been too afraid or too fearful to try out and take a lot of risks. And so I would want that new setup or system or arrangement with Wenger in the director position for me to have complete freedom to do whatever I want. But Wenger would ostensibly just guide me on the things that I don't know too much about so that the process of becoming a manager at Arsenal and taking over from someone who's been there for 20 years, uh, that is a little bit easier to do. So at the end of the day, when Wenger leaves that director of football role and special advisor role, I would have created Arsenal in my image as the new manager, but I wouldn't have torn apart or needlessly taken out or removed all the aspects of what made Arsenal Arsenal great under Arsene Wenger, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. You know, one name comes to mind that I don't want to get close to Arsenal is Carly Jobless. His name is Louis Van Gaal. I don't want him near the Emirates Stadium at all. You're saying you don't want him to confuse Chris and Mike Smalling the way he could potentially confuse Pear Mertesacker for a pair? <laughs> like the yeah, yeah. Those kind of mistakes could happen, you know? And it could hurt people's feelings as well. Yeah. I still can't believe it. He That was his best defender, Chris Smalling. And he called him Michael Smalling, like as if he doesn't know his name. And I get that there's something called Alzheimer's and like people could have it and he could potentially have it. Who knows? <laughs> but that's that's a weird mistake to make. But speaking of Mr. Smalling, he was the one that got the first goal for Manchester United at Old Trafford as Leicester came to town and basically was pretty humbled by United who figured out how to do this thing called winning. And once they got back to winning attitude, Juan Mata latched on in the 37th minute with a goal and then Rashford in the 40th and Paul Pogba in the 42nd. So just like Arsenal scoring all their three goals, before halftime, Man United pretty much did the same thing where they ended up scoring four goals and then Leicester brought the only goal from Demarai Gray in the 59th minute, which was amazing to watch had Leicester not been losing 4-1 to one by that point. So Ryan, this was a good, good game for United to bounce back on. Mourinho finally did the deed, which is benching Wayne Rooney and just keeping him on, on the bench. While saying all the right things like, my captain is my captain, I don't know even know what that means in regards to Wayne Rooney, but apparently that's not the case anymore. So Mourinho himself got a haircut, he looks sleek, he looks suave, and this looked like a winning atmosphere is back to Old Trafford. Would you agree? 
Yeah, that's you know the reason why United are back to winning ways. It's simple. Just drop Wayne Rooney. He's a waste of space in that number ten role for Manchester United. And Mourinho finally has the balls to drop him this past weekend. Yeah, and that's that's why United came out rolling. They beat Leicester, who, by the way, is the defending champion for the English Premier League. They got rolled four and one. So that's that's a feel good story for Manchester United after dropping Rooney. I mean, it would be a whole different story if, if he dropped Rooney, Mourinho dropped Rooney, and United ended up losing. But, of course, it didn't turn out that way. The numbers uh, surely point out that if you drop Rooney, United is going to significantly improve, and they did. And we see how Pogba improved markedly, how he runs the midfield now that Rooney is not congesting in the middle anymore. We see how Mata orchestrates the attack, a true number 10, a, two, a true creative attacking midfielder playing in that number 10 role instead of Rooney. So this is the result, 4-1, and one, a very emphatic result. And kudos for, to Mourinho to actually, you know, making this huge, huge decision. I mean, come on. We've seen players like Joe Hart, the number one goalkeeper for England, got, you know, ostracized and sent packing to Torino. And this is Rooney we're talking about, the captain. So God knows what the reaction would be if Mourinho just dropped Rooney all of a sudden. Maybe... Uh, the headlines uh, in newspapers or tabloids would be unforgiving towards him. And thankfully, that will not happen thanks to this victory. Yeah, and I think it gives Wayne Rooney some time and perspective. And, like, he may have an injury for all we know. Like, this is a guy that's been highly, highly durable. And he, over the years, like, he's played in almost every match that United have had. And so credit to Wayne Rooney. He's an enormous talent. He deserves to be in the starting lineup on most occasions. But there has been the last two, three years where he has kind of been on a decline. And when that happens, it doesn't mean that you immediately lose your starting spot. But Wayne Rooney has done a pretty good job of losing a starting spot over the, especially the last couple of games. And so when you have that much of an impact where you're actually having a negative impact on the team, then it's probably like you can't, if you're an honest player the way he is, and if you're a really good player, you know, and you can be honest with yourself and just say like, hey, I'm not performing at my best. I deserve to be taken out until I get my crap together. And whether that's nursing an injury or just finally getting time to just step away from the pitch, step away from the stress of being out there, from the pressure of kind of being in a fishbowl at Old Trafford where everyone is looking at you, criticizing your every mistake, that, that might be a good thing sometimes in life, not always aggressively pursuing something and hoping it works is is a bad idea. And like, um, I mean, per, aggressively pursuing all those things is a bad idea. And sometimes the best solution is to just chill for a bit <laughs> and take the lazy route and just not do anything and just seeing if it works out. Because they say inaction is like an injustice to things everywhere. And I think that's in regards to race. <laughs> but uh in terms of football, I think that's also true. It's like inaction is not an injustice. Sometimes inaction allows you to correct everything that you're doing wrong at the moment and get you ready and amped up to actually come back onto the field in a better position than you were when you left the field. And one of the things that I thought Mourinho did really well, and I rarely say this, but he, he is one of my favorite managers, but like he does so many off the field and on the field issues that are just so not worth talking about but we have to because he does them and it's just like you know like the doctor issue with Eva Carnero like just he does so many of these things but at the end of the day he's a good tactician he's a good manager 
Uh, he does innovative things like let the grass grow five inches taller at the Bernabeu. So when Barcelona come into town, they, they can't do the short passing as efficiently or as fast as they used to do. So it's like these things that most managers don't really think of doing. He does them. But his big sore point is that he gets tired of players really quickly. And we saw that with the Schweinsteiger issue. It's like once you're not on Mourinho's side, you're against him. And when you're against him, you don't get any opportunities to prove your value and worth. And that's a huge knock on a manager because that's what he did with Juan Mata. That was the reason why Juan Mata, when Mourinho went to Chelsea, immediately moved to Man United. Even though Mata was like Chelsea's best player after Eden Hazard was there. And earlier in the year, he made he made it sound like Mato is just going to be on the bench, kind of like Schweinsteiger, not get too many opportunities. But I'm glad that in the face of Wayne Rooney's struggles, he has been able to insert Juan Mata into the lineup. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think if you talk about these players like Schweinsteiger being dropped, there's another player mis- missing in action for Manchester United. His name is Henrik Mkhitaryan. Yeah, you know, I think he's in trouble as well because I think, uh, like in, in the past two weeks, I think uh, two weeks ago, I think he stated that he's not happy because he can't start in the middle in a number ten role and he's being you know farmed out onto the right wing, which is not his natural position, and maybe maybe that's why we're not seeing him anymore. Yeah. And maybe we will. Henrik Mkhitaryan will end up like most of Dortmund graduates, like Mario Gotze went to Bayern Munich then return back to Dortmund. Shinji Kagawa moved to Manchester United, can't make it, made it back to Dortmund. <laughs> you know? And there's Nuri Sahin as well. You know, yeah. So maybe Mkhitaryan will join that returning Dortmund core in the future. But I don't know, there is still time. With Rooney now being dropped, there are opportunities in that number 10 role. Maybe Pogba will occupy that role in the future. We don't know that yet. So maybe Mkhitaryan will make his way back. Schweinsteiger will definitely not make his way back, considering how unfavorable he is in the eyes of Mourinho and how he's enjoying life, playing with the kids and vacationing with his lovely wife, Anna Ivanovich. So, you know, baby Mkhitaryan will definitely make it back and play something of a role like he did at Dortmund. He was really devastating in that number 10 role. Mm-hmm. So one of the other things that, I was going to say one of the other things that Van Gaal did pretty good. Mourinho did pretty good. Uh, but this is something that Van Gaal also did really, really good in his limited time at United, amongst a ton of mistakes, is that Van Gaal figured out you got to put Daly Blind into the, into the lineup. Because when you do that, he opens up defenses with his long passing, sort of the way Mats Hummel sometimes like dinks a ball over like three entire lines of defense, starting from the forwards to the defensive line. And like he just finds the, you know, like Thomas Muller or someone on the German forward line and they end up scoring the goal. And it completely, it completely wreaks havoc on a defense to, when they have to go through a pass like that. And I think uh, it, one of those happened against the last year in the uh, North London Derby. Tottenham and, uh, Tottenham and Arsenal had that match at, at the Emirates where I think it was Jan Vertonghen or Danny Rose. One of them launched a perfect like through ball in the air, like 40, 50 yards to Harry Kane. And it was like Murda Sacker was chasing after him. And that, that was that was not going to end well. And I think it ended up in a goal. And so those are the kind of passes that Daily Blind is capable of doing and executing. The only weakness is that he shouldn't be put out at the center of the defense. He should be where he was this weekend, which is left back, 
Or better yet, he should be in the midfield because Daly Blind has been known to make a defensive error or two. So you don't want him to be the last line of defense, but you also want him onto the side as opposed to guys like Fellaini so that he can have the ability to split a defense open, which is something that when Van Gaal side last year would just pass, pass, pass into oblivion and not really move the ball forward, it was Daly Blind's amazing passes all the way to like Rooney at the striker or Rashford at the striker position. And it was through those that United was able to orchestrate the few goals that they scored under Van Gaal for a match to match. So that was one positive thing that, I mean, Luke Shaw will take that position back when he comes back from injury. But for the moment, I thought that was a necessary roster move that had to happen. And tactically, it worked out this weekend. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was pretty interesting seeing Dave Blinn left back instead of central defense. Uh, maybe partly because to to nullify Riyad Mahrez's effect mm-hmm. on that right wing for Leicester City. Blinn did a great job, by the way. And of course, his, you know, process forward, that was great, like, like you mentioned. Yeah. And I don't know, when Luke Shaw returns, will he slot in back in the central of defense? Because Smalling is really a monster in defense together with Eric Bay. So maybe there's no place for Daily Blinn there. And I agree with you, maybe he should play in, in a defensive midfield kind of role. And by doing that, uh, Mourinho can actually free Pogba to move forward even more, which is what Pogba really does best, you know, carry the ball forward, creating havoc from midfield to attack, linking the attack as well. That's what Pogba does best. Mm-hmm. That is how you can utilize the world's most expensive footballer. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking about that, I mean, throughout the match, I mean, <laughs> these commentators—I I don't remember their names—but they keep saying, "Oh, that's a—that's a—that's the world's most expensive, you know, body body there in Paul Pogba moving <laughs> around at Old Trafford." <laughs> it's like wow, it's like a million-dollar man or or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, we get it. He's the most expensive player, and he needs to act like one. And in that in this match against Leicester, he acted like one. So that's good news. Yeah, and a team that's not acting like they can do much of anything this season is West Ham, who fell 3-0 to Southampton, where Charlie Austin and Usain Tadic and James Ward-Prowse got the three goals for Southampton at the Olympic Stadium. So Ryan, West Ham moved from their rinky-dinky arena to Olympic Stadium this season. Why have they been so terrible? Because if anything, this should have gone to be a better move for Slavin Bilic's side, don't you think? Yeah, it should be, you know, moving from a 30,000-plus venue to a 60,000-plus venue. I mean, maybe it gives the players the jitters. I mean, oh, no, we haven't played in front of this many people before, and they got the goosebumps or anything like that. <laughs> but, of course, that's not true. I mean, come on, they're professional players. They should be able uh, to face, uh, you know, fans like that, in, the, in droves like that in, in front of the Olympic Stadium. But... Yeah, West Ham's in West Ham's case uh, this season they've been really, really bad. You know, defeat after defeat after defeat. It's like last season's West Ham was just a sham. You know, <laughs> it was just something to attract people, and then this season, kapow, they're gone. It's a scam, really. They just got tricked into thinking that West Ham is a good side, which is actually, you know, it's true they are a good side. They got Dimitri Payet in there. They got Mikhail Antonio, hardworking player. And they're playing, they've been really underwhelming. They're really underachieving this season. I don't know what's going on with the team. I mean, if you look at them play against Southampton last night, it was like 
they don't know what to do. I mean, and I can't comprehend that because they're basically the same type of players, the same players from last season. Uh, of course, in addition to a few players, of course, but the rest, it's the same. It's the same type of player. So I don't understand. Maybe, I mean, maybe they overachieved last season. This season, we finally get to see the real West Ham players. And this match against Sunderland, uh, it really undermine. It really undermines whatever Slavin Billick has preached uh, towards West Ham in order to improve. And Southampton, it was a majestic performance. I get the reason why Southampton started off. Uh, this season uh, very badly of course as well but in the past few weeks they've been racking up wins and that's good and then I noticed that they didn't really line up in the exact same formation I mean in the past when Southampton got promoted uh, and then they were under Mauricio Pochettino they play in a 4-2-3-1 and then Pochettino left for Spurs and then Ron Coleman comes in and then it's the same system too 4-2-3-1 but then this season, Cloud Puel came in, and the system changed mm-hmm. from a four-two-three-one into a diamond, diamond midfield, a four-three-one-two. So that takes some adjusting. And right now, I think Southampton has adjusted pretty well, and I think they have the, you know, right striker finally uh, to lead them. Charlie Austin has been banging the goals, and he deserves to start for Southampton side, and he did in this match against West against West Ham. So I think that's a good tactical move. Instead of having Redmond and Long leading the attack, so right now they have Redmond paired with Charlie Austin up front with Dusan Tadic uh, in the playmaker role. And I think this is going to you know, help Southampton move forward. I mean, they've been really great. They've found the chemistry again. I mean, under Puel, they've put more emphasis on the wingbacks to push forward Ryan Bertrand and Cedric Suarez. So that's good news because these players, these fullbacks, they love to move forward. So that's a good way to utilize them. And they swam the midfield with central midfielders, Oriol Romeo, Pierre-Emil Hoiberg, uh, and also Steven Davis. And James Ward-Prowse, like he said, I mean, he scored that final goal at, at West Ham. Uh, and he came in as a substitute. But that's great. That's great. I mean, it utilizes whatever talent that Southampton have. Uh, they have a very deep pool of central midfielders. So it comes out good. And I think Southampton are going to move further up after this maybe even overtake Chelsea by next week yeah hopefully they can because that'd be good news after Arsenal's win over Chelsea the past week one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is that West Ham has you said you call them a sham this season but that might be an appropriate nickname for some of the things that their former players have been doing which is building a project where I mean, London, or not London as a whole, but just the UK as a whole, has been experiencing higher rate of eviction for people that rent houses and rent apartments and whatnot. And at the moment, there's 350,000 renters that are at risk of eviction, according to The Guardian, in an article published on 17th of June of this, earlier this summer. And now what Rio Ferdinand, Mark Noble, and Bobby Zamora formerly all of West Ham Football Club, have been doing is building a 400 million pound social housing project that isn't like every other project that exists here in the U.S. or in London. They're going to build it with 1,300 homes on a 22 hectare hectare, uh, site that is in the Houghton Regis near Luton. And those are all cities in England. If you don't know them, that's fine. But uh, 
For English folks, they'll probably be well aware of where these are. And this isn't unprecedented because there's guys like Gary Neville and Ryan Giggs of Manchester United that are currently in a weird fight with the historic England committee that, you know, like obviously Neville and Giggs want to knock down whatever historic nonsense remains from England's past <laughs> and just create an entire block in Manchester city center where they're going to concoct two luxury skyscrapers out of nowhere. And then Liverpool footballer Robbie Fowler has also done something where he has bought a ton of property and then is allowing landlords to come in and build projects and all those different things. But what separates the West Ham trio of Ferdinand Zamora and uh, the third fellow, Mark Noble, is that they're doing this out of sheer goodwill, out of charity. And so, Ryan, talk a little bit more about what this project really entails and whether this is just the charity work that is a, a sham in a way where these three footballers can just keep getting richer. Or is this something that the story itself is going to allow people to uh, other celebrity footballers to do these positive things and help play a contributing role in solving U the UK's housing problem? I hope it's not a sham. I mean, <laughs> the worst thing you can do is crushing other people's hope. You yeah. know, as you said, uh, the number of, you know, people being evicted from their rented homes. I mean, this project will definitely help tremendously. I mean, this is pretty unprecedented. I mean, usually when we talk about players who retired, what are they doing with their money and stuff? Perhaps uh, they spend on something else. But these three, Rio Ferdinand, Mark Noble and Bobby Zamora, they're doing something good. I mean, building this type of social programs, it definitely will help, especially in a city like London, where there's bound to be a lot of unfortunate people, you know, and not just people from England itself, from the Great Britain itself, maybe from other countries who move uh, to England for, you know, opportunities and stuff. So maybe this will help, definitely help a lot and maybe set an example for other retired footballers, you know, because they have millions and millions accumulated over the years playing for clubs and this is the least they could do, right? Help people in their neighborhood, uh, those the less unfortunate. I mean, for example, like Mark Noble and Bobby Zamora, I mean, they grew up in projects themselves, of course, and they've been to hardship as well. So I guess that, that formed a part of their thinking towards this project. And it's a good thing. Maybe when Ronaldo and Messi, and I, I don't know what they do with their money, but I hope they could do something like this. Maybe Messi will do something back in Argentina, you know, do some social housing in Buenos Aires, you know, and maybe I think Ronaldo has already done so uh, on his island uh, where he was born. I think Madeira, right? Yeah. The islands. Yeah. yeah, I think he's already done a lot there. And that's pretty good as well. I mean, it helps people, especially in this testing times where jobs are very scarce and but the prices of goods are coming up, are going up and up and getting inflated and stuff. Uh, people don't have jobs and people who, who's, even those who work, I mean, their wages are really not that enough. So this kind of project will really help. I agree. And one of the things is the people that have the power and the influence, they have to, as a general measure, look out for those that don't. And here in the U.S., there's always this raging debate about how, like, the wealthy can't keep any of their wealth and, like, the, the mid-level family, like, the middle class doesn't exist anymore because everyone's either upper class or everyone's lower class. And 
So all these different things are happening, all these issues are happening, and it's like if you're middle class, it's a good thing. Congrats, you made it. You probably worked really hard to get to that point. If you're wealthy, well, we never know. Like you could be Bill Gates' son who hasn't done anything but is somehow wealthy <laughs> because his dad is wealthy. And then if you're poor, it's like, I mean, we can't even say anything about those people because it's like life is just so tough, man. Existing in life is tough. And if you're poor, it's like a lot of things have to go against your way. And like a lot of things can go your way or my way and we can go right to being poor. And so, and not to say that we're rich or anything either, but um, it's just like, it's so odd that like life treats people in a weird way where we're just kind of put into these boxes of like wealth and social equality and all these different things. And at the end of the day, if there's people like Ferdinand out there and Mark Noble and Zamora who are using their fame and wealth and prosperity to help others get to those levels of, you know, just having a, the ability to have shelter, like the three basic necessities of life, you shelter is one of them and you need to have food, shelter, and just the ability to have freedom in, in your world. And if you can have those three things, you at least have a, a foot off on everyone else that doesn't have it. And there's a, there's a ton of people that don't have it. And you and me, Ryan, and those three footballers, we all live in countries that are that are not perfect in any sense of the word, but they don't have the same issues that a lot of countries in Africa have where there's no functioning water system and there's all these diseases that are like malaria has not been solved in Africa. And that's an issue that 90% of the third world countries have, yet the first world doesn't have malaria anymore because they figured out how to get vaccines and cure themselves. And so it's just like there's a ton of... There's a ton of like inequality in this world. And if there's anything that people with wealth and positions of power can do to help that problem and help solve it rather than cause more issues like corruption to it, that's a positive thing. And so props to Ferdinand and the other two footballers, Zamora and Mark Noble, to get this thing going. And hopefully they can uh, change some lives and impact some people for the positive with this. And moving on to the last three matches we want to cover, Ryan, we have five minutes, so if you can squeeze this in, it would be good. I don't want to take too much of your uh, talents away in terms of talking about the match, but let's just see if we can uh, close the podcast out in under 60 minutes. So moving to Tottenham, Middlesbrough at Riverside Stadium, Spurs 1-2-1 with a huge performance from Hingman Sun. This guy has been just a revelation this season. He was on about to make a statement last year but for whatever reason like Harry Kane obviously is the star of that team and so this guy's son doesn't get a ton of headlights but now son has become the father at Tottenham Football Club Brian. <laughs> wow I mean yeah uh yeah with son I mean he's been doing great this season he's already equaled his tally he's already he already has four goals this season equal the tally that he accumulated last season which is already good it means that he's grown so much as a player. And it is to be expected because before he joined Tottenham, when he played for Bayer Leverkusen, he was really exceptional. He was banging in the goals at Leverkusen. Then he moved to Spurs last season. So maybe the time that it took for him to acclimatize himself, to really adapt himself to how to conduct life in London, probably took its toll last season. And finally this season, he managed to somehow turn it around. And Pochettino credited him for turning it around as well. I mean, 
he obviously was so close to leaving this season, but Pochettino made him change his mind and saying that he can make it here because it's already been a year. You already acclimatized. Trust me, you can do it. And he did. And he repaid Pochettino's trust in him and he's already got four goals already. And I think there's more to come, which is good because Tottenham are going to need every single player available this season. They're going to get stretched because they're playing in the Champions League this season. They're playing in the Premier League, which means matches every Sunday and then matches on Wednesdays and Tuesdays and then back to the normal English Premier League matches as well. So they're going to de- need all the strength in depth that they have. So that's good because Yomison is answering that call. And I mean, yeah, I mean, in this match itself, we don't see Harry Kane playing. Harry Kane is being rested and because to nurse some, some sort of minor injury as well, but... Vincent Janssen in his place was pretty good as well. He didn't score a goal, but he acquitted himself well. He played the holding role very well, and he assisted that first goal for Son, so which bodes well for Spurs in the future. Yeah, and at the Anfield Stadium, at the Anfield Stadium, I doubt anyone has ever called it that. <laughs> Great job on the transitions right there. But uh, at Anfield, Liverpool got the 5-1 victory over Hull City. And it was a 10-man hole pretty early on because James Milner converted on a penalty in the 30th minute. And from there on, Hull didn't have 11 men anymore. And so Sadio Mane got on the board in the 36th minute. Philippe Coutinho with a brilliant performance overall, but also contributed a goal in the 52nd minute. And then Milner closed things off and made it 5-1 with yet another penalty conversion in the 71st minute. So this is a game where Adam Lallana shone through. He had the first goal of the game in the 17th minute, and after that, it was it was the Coutinho, Mane, and Lana show, which I think is going to be expected as we move forward from Liverpool, don't you think, Ryan? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the front three itself is really scary. Like I said before, Liverpool are really scary this season when it comes to their attack. A lot of different combinations, and in this demolition of all, it's Firmino, Coutinho, and Mane, and of course that midfield which includes Lalana as well. I mean, what is he doing in midfield? But he's been doing really, really well in this new system under Klopp. So that's good for Lalana, seeing him in a new role. People would say that Lalana is excelling, getting the minutes because his Klopp's, you know, neighbor. They live in the same neighborhood. I think they live next door to each other. I don't know. But so basically they, they think of Lalana as a teacher's pet. But that's not really true, right? Because based on his performances already this season, he deserved to be in the starting eleven. He deserved mm-hmm. to start in midfield, which is not his natural position, and he's really doing really, really well. So that's good news. I mean, it's really scary. Laulana from deep, running around and trying to conjure passes and score a goal or two himself, and the front three of Mane, Firmino, Coutinho, and maybe Sturridge as well uh, as a substitute. And that's really that's a really scary attack. And once again, they proved that they could tear teams to shreds. You know. Maybe the defense is not yet tested, uh, particularly James Milner at left back, although he is really excelling at left back this season. Not his natural position because we know Milner plays in midfield or maybe up down the wings, but this season, due to inadequacies at left back, he's been playing a straight there as a part-time left back, but it looks like he's, he's making left back into his own position right there. Maybe he hasn't faced the type of opposition like Lionel Messi or maybe an Antoine Griezmann or Gareth Bale yet, but it votes well for Liverpool. Yep, and Man City got the 3-1 victory at Liberty Stadium in the second straight match that Swansea and Man City played this last past week. And Fernando Llorente actually got on the scoreboard as well for Swansea in the 13th minute, 
But by that point, it was already too late because Aguero had scored a ninth-minute goal, and then City were always looking to attack, and obviously Pep Guardiola's teams maintained possession, so it's tough for Swansea to win it back. But the match actually stayed at 1-1 until the 61st, in, until the 65th minute when Man City ended up scoring the second goal thanks to a Sergio Aguero penalty shot. And then Raheem Sterling, for a second week in a row in the Premier League, got onto the scoreboard with a 77th minute goal to basically put all doubt away that Man City was going to lose this game. So great performance from Aguero, but Raheem Sterling once again gets on the scoreboard. Ryan, what do you think this means for City moving forward? Well, I mean, it means exactly as it is. 10 out of 10. I mean, of course, considering matches in the <laughs> Champions League and yeah. EFL Cup. But 10 out of 10 for Pep Guardiola. Really, really great. The only downside from this match is that Kevin De Bruyne is out injured for months. So I don't know how Pep Guardiola is going to fill in that void, that De Bruyne void. But I think they'll manage. I mean, they have Gundogan in central midfield and Silva, so maybe De Bruyne's absence will be alleviated a bit. But it will be felt nonetheless, especially when City uh, faces teams like Barcelona in the future. I think it, it's next two in the next two weeks, or is it next week? They're gonna face Barcelona, so yeah. Without De Bruyne, I think their chances are, you know, reduced a bit. Agreed. So Ryan, this is a great EPL podcast for us, and. Do you have any last words to say, or are we good to go? Well, I want to say something to Celtic. I mean, they got to face Manchester City in the Champions League this week, so they got trashed last time out by Barcelona. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I hope that they don't get trashed again because <laughs> they're going to, to, you know, bring a bad name to Scottish football. So don't lose by a lot, but at least lose respectfully to Manchester City, or just win. <laughs> winning solves that's, everything. That's impossible. That's <laughs> impossible. <laughs> you never know. Man City has been, like, they played last weekend, obviously, and then played midweek, and then this past weekend, and then now they have to go to Celtic as well. And so it's just, you know, there's opportunity for Celtic to win. But like I said, winning solves everything. So you just have to win. And if you win, no one's asking you any other questions. So with that weird positively note, of the business world we will uh end the podcast ryan thank you for joining in everyone else listening hope you have a good rest of the week and tune back in on monday morning afternoon to listen to the epl podcast thank you